This morning we continue our study of 2 Corinthians, and today we find ourselves in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, beginning at verse 23, and we'll go all the way through into chapter 2, verse 11. Uh, That's found on page 964 in the uh, Bibles that are provided for you there in the rows. If you'd like to follow along uh, in a hard copy, or if not, you can uh, follow along behind me as they will also be printed on the screen as well. Second Corinthians chapter 1, beginning at verse 23. But I call God to witness against me. It was to spare you that I refrained from coming again to Corinth. Not that we lord it over your faith, but we work with you for your joy. For you stand firm in your faith. For I made up my mind not to make another painful visit to you. For if I have caused you pain, who is there to make me glad but the one whom I have pained? And I wrote as I did, so that when I came, I might not suffer pain from those who should have made me rejoice. For I felt sure of all of you that my joy would be the joy of you all. For I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. Now, if anyone has caused pain, he has caused it not to me, but in some measure, not to put it too severely, to all of you. For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. So, you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. For this is why I wrote, that I may test you, And know whether you are obedient in everything. Anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. Indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ, so that we would not be outwitted by Satan. For we are not ignorant of his designs. Let us pray together. Lord, I thank you so much for this passage of Scripture which reveals the Apostle Paul's heart for the church. And in many ways reveals what our hearts should be for one another. Lord, I pray that you would use this message and your word to increase our joy in you and our love for one another. Lord, that you would purify our perspectives and our priorities. Lord, that you would convert the lost and that you would be glorified. These are God-sized requests. And so, Lord, we come to you asking you to do by the power of your spirit what only you can do in our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Second Corinthians, if you're visiting with us this morning, a welcome. I uh, want you to know that uh, what may have uh, seemed like a strange passage to walk into, if you have not been here in, in previous weeks, why we are where we are. It's our practice here at, uh, for, at New Hope Christian Fellowship to work our way through books of the Bible, uh, expositionally, verse by verse, so we can understand uh, uh, 
God's word in context. Um, God gave us this book, the Bible, in order to communicate himself to us, communicate his expectations uh, to us, to guide us, to allow us to know him better, to help us in our efforts to love one another well. And so we come recognizing that this word, God's word, is authoritative in our lives. And here in 2 Corinthians, we, we find ourselves, Paul is still in, in what we would consider a, a, an autobiographical uh, part of the, of the book here. He's, he, he's reflecting on and, and he's defending charges that were made against him by the Corinthians. If you were here last week, you remember that, that Paul is responding to the charge of, that he was double-minded and, and he wasn't trustworthy because he did not come to the Corinthians in the manner that he initially had said that he was going to. He had to change his plans. And so some in the church, his enemies, were saying, listen, this proves that, that this guy, Paul, we, we can't trust him. We can't take him at his word. So let's go back to, 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 to focusing on what uh, Peter has to say. Or, 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 or let's, let, let, let's focus elsewhere on some of our own leaders rather than the Apostle Paul. And so Paul, recognizing the danger that was at hand in the life of the church because he wrote authoritatively to them as to how they were to live, needed to act. He needed to address this. And so he did go to the church and we know that he was, uh, his authority was attacked publicly while he was there at the church and, and that there were many in the church who were led astray and others who did nothing about it when Paul was opposed. And so Paul left that visit and wrote what we refer to as his severe letter to the church saying, listen, your behavior when I was with you last is not consistent with the body of Christ. He was sinned against. And so Paul writes this severe letter calling the church to act. Calling them to discipline those that had sinned against Paul. And so that's where we find ourselves, in the middle of Paul's defense of himself. Last week, Paul defended himself on the basis of his conscience and his behavior when he was with them and his care for them. And here we, we find him defending the change of decision in terms of being based on his love for them. We're going to see he didn't want to go until he had given them the opportunity to respond to his instruction in his severe letter. And, and this really is a timely warning to the church today as we, how we should think about how we relate to one another. This timely warning uh, really reminds us that, number one, we are not immune to the deceitfulness of the sin of pride, which lends itself to a critical spirit. If you remember our study of the book of 1 Corinthians, which we were doing at this time last year, that, that one of the things that Paul was addressing in Corinth was the existence of factions in the church. Some identified themselves as followers of Paul or of Peter or of Apollos, who was a, a skilled Greek orator. Some said they didn't need any teachers at all. They followed Jesus. And so you, you had this church that consisted of all these different people identifying with different leaders. So there was no unity there. And that, the, the, the problem with that 
besides the obvious division that existed, was the fact that you had followers of Peter thinking that they were better than or more enlightened than the followers of Paul and Apollos or, or, or the followers of Jesus thinking that they were smarter than everybody. Pride had crept in and there was a critical nature. And so I think this passage reminds us, as Paul addresses these issues in, a, in another way, yet again, that our pride is deceitful. We, we don't realize how proud we actually are. And sometimes we're aware of our pride, and we're aware of the ugliness of our pride, but we still don't know how bad it really is. Brothers and sisters, this is why we never... At any point in our Christian existence are without the need of the sacrifice of Christ because even when we think it's going great and we are confessing our sin well and we are denying ourselves and seeking to love and encourage one another we still need God's grace so so, so pride is real and it is pervasive and it should cause us to, to, to lean even more dependently on the Word of God and the work of the Spirit of God in our lives. And, and sin, when it is present and, and bringing about problems in the context of the body, it is something that, that must be confronted. But this passage reminds us that the confrontation of sin must always be done in love and it must have a goal in mind. And that would be the restoration of the erring or the fallen brother or sister and for the good of the church. This is what Paul did here in his severe letter in addressing the, the, the people who had opposed his authority and, and had slandered them. He wrote to, 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 to call the church to, to act because the church's health was in danger. This passage also reminds us that repentance, when it takes place, following confrontation, is a, is a glorious work of God. It's something to be celebrated. And, and when someone repents of, of sin, whether it be personally against you or, or publicly against a group of people, it is something to be celebrated, but also forgiveness should be given freely because we have been forgiven by God through the gospel. Now, this is a lot for an introduction, I know, but, but I want to, to whet your appetite for the, for the feast that is before us this morning. What we find here should purify how we view one another in the church. I'm going to tackle our passage this morning under just two main headings. The first is the call to, for us to be pursuing true joy in Christ. And secondly, the importance of restoring the broken, those who have fallen in love. This is a, a beautiful passage that, that glorifies the gospel and the fruit of the gospel in our lives. So let's look first at, at, at verse, chapter 1, verse 23, through chapter 2, verse 4. 
pursuing true joy in Christ. Christ. Paul writes, But I call God to witness against me. It was to spare you that I refrained from coming again to Corinth. Not that we lord it over your faith, but we work with you for your joy. For you stand firm in your faith. For I made up my mind not to make another painful visit to you. For if I cause you pain, who is there to make me glad but the one whom I have pained? And I wrote as I did, so that when I came, I might not suffer pain from those who should have made me rejoice. For I felt sure of all of you, that my joy would be the joy of you all. For I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart, and with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. Paul begins with a very powerful and significant oath in his writing. I call God to witness against me. That's a, that's a strong statement. We know that Paul was not one to, 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 to use the, the name of the Lord lightly. He's, he's certainly not being flippant, you know, as some people might say today in conversations when they're trying to emphasize something. Oh, is God is my witness. Well, if they really considered the weight of what they were actually saying, they would want to be completely sure that what they were saying was the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. Paul knew exactly what he is saying in this oath, and he's saying, listen, in light of this charge that I am deceitful and untrustworthy, I declare before God, may God judge me if what I'm about to tell you is a lie. That's strong. This is a direct response to his trustworthiness being challenged over this change of plans. If I'm lying, then God can judge me. Why, why, why swear an oath before God in this context? Because, well, what's the nature and character of God? God is the source of all truth. And God is the one who ultimately punishes falsehood. And so Paul is, as we used to say down south, saying it plain. There's, there's no doubt about what is coming next. This isn't just from the heart. It is backed up by facts, and he's willing to stand before God on the basis of what he has to say. We saw last week that Paul made it clear that his conscience was clear in his relation to the Corinthians and his motives were pure. And here in, in chapter 2 verse 4 he says, listen, it's also because I love you with an abundant, overflowing, consuming love. I want your joy in Christ to be full. Verse 24, Paul makes the point that, that, that his authority as an apostle was not something that he was exercising as a way to, to, to seek to control or, or he uses the phrase lord it over the church. He says, I, I wrote to you to, to deal with the offender 
Not as a way to, 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 to somehow manipulate you or, or to drive you, but, but my desire for you is to build you up in joy. This presence of sin undealt with in the church is stealing your joy in Christ it's true in the context of when public sin is celebrated or permitted in the church, and it's also true in the case of our private lives as well. If we have, let me rephrase that, when we have sins that we are clinging to and unwilling to repent of, that saps the joy and spiritual vitality from our lives. And you know why that is? Because God loves us too much to allow us to take true fulfillment in that way of living. It worked for us when we were unbelievers because we were slaves of sin. But now that power has been broken, we've been united to a greater joy through Christ and in Christ. So those other things ultimately will not satisfy. And so Paul says, listen, I, I want you to experience something that, that this treasuring of sin that you allow to take place publicly can never do. I'm not your pope. I'm, I'm not commanding you. I'm coming alongside you. I'm working with you for your joy in Christ. This is a, a beautiful and clear example of how leaders in the, in the context of a church should shepherd those under their care. The, the goal is fulfillment, joy in Christ, because when we find our joy in Him, the, the temptations of this world are weakened in our lives. They don't fully go away. But not only that, when we are experiencing true joy in Him, our priorities change as well. The, the things that we used to live for lose a little bit of that luster. We recognize that in Christ we've been called to live for something greater. It's not that Paul's not being authoritative here. He is very authoritative. But he wants them to know that this is the perspective of, of someone who is coming alongside as a brother. He wants what's best which is their joy in Christ. Paul's approach to ministry was what was that of one who, who had authority, but more importantly, he recognized that he was under the authority of Christ. Oh, that we would have that same view of our own lives and, and ministries. We are under his authority. So listen, I, I, I didn't want to come back to Corinth right away because he knew that, that if he went back before his letter was read and responded to, this severe letter, he knew that the visit was going to be painful. He wasn't gonna, going to be able to come in with, with a sense of joy and building them up. He was going to have to come with a rod to, to bring correction and deal with this himself. In fact, we'll see later in 2 Corinthians when it comes to the, 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 the existence and continued presence of false teachers in the church, he still makes that warning. Don't make me come to deal with that. I, I want to come for your joy. I want to come for your good. 
I want to build you up. I want this to be a, a joyful reunion. And so Paul wisely, instead of coming right away, waits. He, he allows the opportunity for the Spirit of God to move in the church. He wanted them to, to clean their own house, if you will. He recognized that their obedience was not dependent on his presence because the Spirit of God lived within them as well. The same Spirit that Paul had. What, what a beautiful reminder for us, brothers and sisters, is that the work of God is not dependent on us always being present, dictating every little aspect of, of people's lives, but recognizing that as the, the truth of God is proclaimed, the Spirit of God is at work. Doesn't mean that we don't do important things like discipleship and worship and teaching together and all. All those things are important. Those are avenues with which we lay this foundation of God's word from which the Spirit draws as He grows us as His people. But we must not lose sight of the fact that it is God's Spirit that convicts of sin. Again, Paul's desire was to see the church growing in their joy. Their satisfaction is another word that is often used in God. When we are satisfied in God, we don't need the trifling satisfactions that this world tries to offer us. And this type of, of growth in, in, in our joy in the Lord truly is the goal of our confrontation. Confrontation over sin will happen. But brothers and sisters, why it happens is just as important as how it happens. The goal is restoration and growth in the Lord. Paul wanted the Corinthians to be happy, truly happy in their relationship with the Lord. Now we live in a world that prioritizes our comfort and our happiness. And so sometimes we, we differentiate between the word happy and the word joy because we want joy to have this idea of this sanctified nature. And that's true. There is a huge difference between Christian joy and worldly happiness. But honestly, the meaning of the words are exactly the same. It's just the source of our happiness must be found in Christ. As sure as you are drawing breath at this very moment, I know that every one of us are facing the daily battle to prioritize where we are going to find our joy. So with the love of the Apostle Paul and the love of your pastor, may I exhort you this morning to prioritize your relationship with the Lord. Read his word. Worship him more than just one day a week. Spend time every morning, every night, reflecting on and giving thanks to God for what he has done. Read his word and 
grow in your understanding of who he is and you will find that your joy in him begins to increase. Because that is true joy, brothers and sisters. As happy as the high moments in this life may make us feel, they pale in comparison to the joy of knowing we have been reconciled to God through the faithfulness of Jesus Christ our Lord. So will we seek our joy in Christ alone, brothers and sisters? Paul continues in chapter 2, verses 5 through 11, by focusing on the restoring of the broken in love. He continues in verse 5, Now if anyone has caused me pain, he has caused it not to me, but in some measure, not to put it too severely, to all of you. For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. So you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. For this is why I wrote, that I might test you and know whether you are obedient in everything. Anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. Indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ, so that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. So Paul's, the first half is, listen, I didn't come because I, I wanted you to, to, to find your joy in Christ. Do what's right. Deal with the offender. And clearly they did. But here as we continue, we, 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 we see that apparently, although the, the offender clearly had repented because Paul is saying, listen, you need to accept him. It seems that the church was slow in forgiving. Now, in 1 Corinthians, when Paul was writing about the young man who had uh, taken his father's wife, probably his stepmother, and was involved in an immoral relationship, he, he, he called the church to church discipline. To, 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 he uses the phrase, hand them over to Satan, which is a, a way of saying, put them out of fellowship of the body of Christ. And it certainly seems that, that, that this is what has taken place in this instance as well. The offending believer's behavior was what well, was more in line with an unbeliever than a believer, and so the church acted to, to, to bring about discipline. There's been a response, but the church has yet to do their part in caring for this repentant brother. And, and this lack of restoration by the church endangered his spiritual health. It put him in a, in a bad place Spiritually, as, as a result, he was in danger of despairing of his faith and of life itself. And this is a powerful reminder that in cases of discipline, the church has an obligation to care well, not just for the offended party, but also for the offender in the terms of their repentance and reconciliation to the church. Paul says, listen, don't leave him out there. If he has responded in repentance and faith, welcome him back, love him, care for him. The, the work goes beyond simply the confrontation of sin. The work continues in that expression of 
forgiveness. And this is true in our personal relationships as well. Most of the sin that we deal with in the context of the church is not something that, that comes before the elders and then is brought for before the church to be dealt with. That has happened in the history of this church. But let's be honest, most of the sins that take place in the context of the body relate to individual sin against one another. Things get worked out behind the scenes or dealt with. But we still have that same obligation as those who have received forgiveness from Christ to, to, to impart that forgiveness to others when they seek it from us. Because what is it that I always tell you? There is not one sin that could ever be committed against us that is greater than our offense against a holy God. And so how can we not forgive others? Forgiveness is, is a key aspect of our lives as Christians. And when we forget that our standing before God is based solely on the faithfulness of Christ, then we are on dangerous ground spiritually because it's easy for us to, to want to withhold forgiveness and reconciliation to others. We think that somehow they don't deserve it. And that's evidence that our perspective is wrong. Writing about this man who had not been received back into the church, Paul warns that, that he may be overwhelmed by sorrow. It mean, literally means to be swallowed up or, or drowned by his sadness over what has taken place. And that really is, it, it's actually a good thing that he was at this point at some point because that, that's the purpose of, of church discipline is, is to serve as a wake-up call to, to lead us to a, such a state that, 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 that the offender sees the seriousness of his sin before God. That, that he repents of his sin, that he mourns his sin. And then he turns for forgiveness. It is a serious state, but it is not a state that we are meant to stay in when we turn back to Christ in faith. In fact, after repentance, we cannot be left in this state. Our responsibility is to forgive and to comfort, to, to reaffirm their love for the now restored brother or sister. And this most likely involved a, a public act. If this person, if they followed the, the plan in 1 Corinthians, this person was publicly put out of the church. And Paul's like, listen, you need to publicly bring them back in the church as well. You, you, you want the church to see that they have turned from their sin, they have turned back to Christ, and they are being welcomed and, and fully received into the fellowship. Paul points out, he says, listen, you guys were obedient when I called you to deal with the sin. Now I want you to be obedient in restoring this brother. Why? He goes on to continue, verse 11, because we are not ignorant about who? About Satan and his designs. Well, what are his designs? Well, his design is to, is, is to divide and ultimately destroy the church and her witness for Christ. That is the devil's plan for your life. He wants to cause you to question your faith. He wants you to discredit your testimony. And he wants you out of fellowship with other brothers and sisters in Christ. 
That's how he weakens the church. That's how he weakens our faith. The Bible tells us that he is a deceiver who seeks to bring division through false teaching, through factions within the church, by tempting believers to, to withhold forgiveness from one another, and, and by appealing to our fleshly tendency towards our own preferences. This happens not only when the church deals poorly in matters of church discipline, but also when we elevate our preferences in matters of conscience above our love for one another. More on that in the conclusion. But we need to remember that the antidote is always to look to Christ and to love others as he has loved us. Spurgeon has a great quote about unity in church. You knew there had to be one Spurgeon quote, right? Well, here it is. Satan always hates Christian fellowship. It is his policy to keep Christians apart. Anything which can divide saints from one another, he delights in. He attaches far more importance to godly intercourse than we do. Godly interaction between the saints. Since union is strength, he does his best to promote separation. Oh, what a prophetic statement on the common attitude towards church today. I can take it or leave it. So what about us? What about us? I don't know about you guys, but as New Year's roll around, you tend to stop and think a little bit more deeply about life and that kind of stuff and I am not different in that. I realized this morning that this year marks the, the 25th year that I've been involved in some sort of church ministry. 25 years. And I've seen a lot when it comes to conflict in the church. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 23 through chapter 2, 11 is about public sin and restoration. But there are other ways that conflict arises in the context of the church, and it's primarily around matters of preference and matters of conscience. Well, what do I mean by those two phrases, right? I'm about to go off on the rift that I'm about to go off on, warning, then you need to know what I'm talking about. Well, preferences are what they sound like. I prefer this type of music over that type of music. I prefer a preacher who ends at 11 o'clock rather than at 11.30 with his sermon. Too bad. I prefer... Churches where they wear ties or they have a moment of silence before the service begins. Or I don't prefer those things. Those are preferences, things we like better than other things. And, and some preferences are, are good. We, we might like things that, are, 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 are that draw us closer to the Lord than others, but, but we cannot dictate our preferences onto other people's preference. Matters of conscience are a little bit different. Matters of conscience describes how our understanding of, of certain passages of Scripture shape certain practices. Okay. 
We are a, 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 a non-denominational church that is made up of members, some of whom come from a variety of different church backgrounds. And, and you did church differently, and that's okay. You, you may have a, a, a different opinion or, or, or conviction, maybe a better word, concerning what is okay and not okay to do on Sunday after church, this, what we call, or some people refer to as the modern Sabbath. There may be different convictions concerning your attitude towards alcohol, whether it's okay to, to drink and not get drunk or you have to abstain. People read scripture, they study scripture, and they come away with, 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 with different convictions. It might be convictions about how often we, we celebrate the Lord's Supper or how we do baptism. Those are matters of conscience. It, your, 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 your view concerning whether or not it's okay or, or not okay to, for, for, for a woman to work outside the home, that's a matter of conscience. These are all things that we deal with, right? You have different people, sincere believers, who love the Lord, they read God's word, and they come away with different ways that we apply these things in our lives. And that's okay. It's good for us to be different in that regard, as long as these matters of conscience aren't actually things that are essentials. There's plenty of clear things in Scripture that we must agree on. That's not what I'm talking about here. You deny Christ as the only way of salvation, then you're, you're outside of Christianity. You deny the authority of Scripture, then you're outside of what we hold to as a church. I'm talking about matters of conscience. We've studied, we've come away with this. And in 25 years, I don't want to say I've seen it all because I know that tomorrow I'll see something I've never seen before. And it's wintertime and I don't want to deal with that. But the majority of issues that I've dealt with as a, an associate or, or even as a senior pastor have centered primarily on issues that have stemmed first and for, foremost from matters of preference and matters of conscience. And honestly, brothers and sisters, that should not be the case. Humility is essential for us as the body of Christ, as we relate to people in this body who we have covenanted with to care for and love one another well. And so our consciences cannot dictate the freedoms are the limitations of others. That is not the loving thing to do. Can we have conversations? Absolutely. But as you have those conversations, it's important, and skipping to the last point, but, but, but I'm on a roll. As we deal with those matters and, and those areas that we disagree on, we cannot come to the table simply with the goal of winning an argument. The goal must be, as brothers and sisters in Christ, to come to an understanding of, hey, this is why I hold to a little bit different position than you do on this. I love you. I'm going to worship and serve alongside you. 
I want to glorify God with you. I want to support you in, in your trials and tribulations, and I want you to do the same for me. And when I am walking in sin, I, I want you to confront me because you love me. But we often assume that the other person arrived at their convictions with, with, with less study and, and insight than we did. And, and I, again, I am not having anybody in mind, but, but just reflecting even on my own attitude over the years. So, if you're feeling convicted, well, I'll tell you earlier, that's the Spirit. But grace and love must be the seasons of our relationship with one another. Our interaction with each other should be not just tinged with, but, 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 but cooking like the person who puts too much of everything in when it comes to the spices. You can never have too much grace and love. Again, we're talking about matters of, of preference and conference, our, our conscience. When sin is present, Scripture must guide our efforts to comfort and restore brothers and sisters, whether it be a, 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 a discipline, officially a church situation, or whether it be just our relationships with one another. We must be guided by the Word of God. We must never forget that as the body, when it comes to matters of conscience and preferences, that relationships must take precedent over being right. This is what we've been called to, brothers and sisters. It's what we've covenanted to, and we have a lot of different convictions and preferences and all that, and praise God for it. But woe be to us when those things become idols in our lives. That is cause to repent. Let us pray. Lord, I thank you for your word.